Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by my good friend, Dr. Evan Ellis. Dr. Ellis is a CSIS non-resident senior associate for the Americas program. He's also a research professor of Latin American studies at the U.S. Army War College Strategic Studies Institute. He previously served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff with responsibility for Latin America and the Caribbean, a really interesting role as well as international narcotics and law enforcement issues. He covered that as well. So most recently, he's published a book entitled China Engages Latin America, Distorting Development and Democracy. Again, the title's called China Engages Latin America, Distorting Development and Democracy by Dr. Evan Ellis. So Dr. Ellis, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be on the show. So I always ask people, why did you write this book? Why did you write the book, China Engages Latin America, Distorting Development and Democracy? Well, Dan, that's a great question. Uh, I've seen the situation in Latin America with China evolve over about 20 years that I followed it. And I've given a lot of different analyses in, in various forums about what it all means. So I wanted to write a book that captured the holistic concept about the phenomenon of Chinese investment and engagement in Latin America from the PRC's global objectives and approach to how Latin America really fits into that. I wanted to write a book that brought some conceptual coherence that tied together what the PRC is doing in areas like the commercial space, uh, searching for resources and markets uh, to focus on infrastructure and connectivity and, and why that's part of that, um, but also how that relates to what the PRC is doing in the political and multilateral engagement areas, people-to-people uh, -people diplomacy, uh, diplomatic struggle for Taiwan, military relationships, and, and of course, uh, COVID-19. In a sense, I wanted to tie those pieces together in a way that was useful for both policymakers and analysts and not simply an international relations book. And also, Dan, there are a lot of works out there that have been written that I've seen over the years that really catalog what China is doing in different countries or sectors. And there are works on different uh, ideological extremes, uh, some from a rosy perspective about how China is bringing a new era of hope and development to Latin America, others that see the PRC executing a complex nefarious plot to, to take over the world. Um, but I wanted to write something balanced that captured really some of the significant and sometimes worrisome impacts of the Chinese behavior in the region, but that nested that in this idea that China is also simply seeking its own commercial and geopolitical interests with a general approach, but often um, improvising and making mistakes and, and adjusting as it goes along. You know, when I lived in Argentina in, from 1999 to 2002, so that was more than 20 years ago, China was not on anybody's radar screen in the region. It was not anybody's number one trading partner. It wasn't anybody's number two trading partner. It was probably not in any country's top five trading partners in the region. And actually, I think that would be an interesting look at to see that. Like, tell me, you know, 25 or 20 years ago, I would bet that in all 33 countries in the Western Hemisphere, China, other than maybe the United States or Canada, was not a top five trading partner. 
You're absolutely correct, Dan. Uh, what had happened is that uh, China's engagement with Latin America had actually begun to expand exponentially as far back as the 1990s with a PRC opening globally, but from a very low base. But when it really began to take off uh, in the trade domain was in 2001 when the PRC was accepted into the World Trade Organization. And so from about 2001 until um, present, you saw a 18-fold expansion in trade. So it went exactly as you said, from sometime trading partner number 15 or 16 to the point in which today it's the number one trading partner of every nation in Latin America, South of Costa Rica, or if it's number two, it's it's number two behind Brazil. That early trade was largely what I like to say a a trade without Chinese companies on the ground in Latin America, insofar as uh, China generally was purchasing uh, Latin American commodities as uh, mineral products, foodstuffs, and it was selling a complex array of manufacturing uh, goods and, and some construction services uh, to the market. But little by little, as those ties were expanded, um, as the relationships were built between Chinese businesses and others, um, by about 2010, as the region began to recover from the global economic economic crisis of 2008, you also began to see for the first time Chinese companies coming in through mergers and acquisitions or other ways, um, building up a actual capability on the ground. And then that really transformed the politics because it made the Chinese for the first time have to worry about their relationships with local labor forces, with local governments, uh, with local communities. Um, and that generated a lot of conflict, but it also generated uh, great learning opportunities for those Chinese companies that have made them ever more effective, including to this day, in actually operating as political as well as uh, economic players in the region. When I think about mainland China and I think about Latin America, I think about soy because soy is a form of food for pigs. Their diets have changed. There's a lot more, they consume a lot more pork and to consume more pork, you need soy. I also think about minerals, not just rare earths like lithium where there's a lot of attention, but let's call them meat and potato earths like copper, so if you want to have electric batteries, and they're the number one manufacturer of electric batteries right now, you need a lot of copper. There's 200 pounds of copper in a Tesla battery. There ain't enough, you know, in your jar at home to recycle. You got to go and mine that copper. So copper, lithium, soy, maybe oil, maybe gas, and also maybe potentially markets to sell goods. What am I missing? Well, then when I uh, look at this, you actually find that China is across the board. And in general, you can say that, that China looks for uh, two big things. Uh, number one, it looks for secure access to the um, the factor inputs, the commodities and foodstuffs uh, to make the Chinese economy run. And you alluded to, to many of those things just now. So you have its role in the oil sector in places like Venezuela, but also in Brazil and in the subsol, also in Ecuador back since about 2004 and in a number of other places. You have China's role, as, as you alluded to, um, in the big um, mineral deposits. And so it's become the number one purchaser of, of Chilean uh, copper, as well as uh, nitrate-based uh, fertilizers, in addition to the lithium that, that you mentioned too. Uh, also uh, major plays in places like Peru, increasingly in Argentina and elsewhere. Also things that you wouldn't think of in terms of, of the commodities, such as, for example, you find uh, in places like the interior of Guyana and Suriname, China plays a role in the timber sector. You find that in Peru, China's 
actually involved in fisheries there through China Fisheries Group is a complement to uh, what it does with its its deepwater fishing fleet. But on the other side of things, you also find that it's involved uh, in agricultural, especially agro logistics. Uh, so uh, China Kafka is is a big purchaser of agricultural goods, you, as you alluded to. Not only the the soy beans and and soy oil, um, but also things like fish meal, which it gets from Peru, but also uh, increasingly purchasing uh, different uh, type of meat products. Uh, China is playing a, a big role right now in trying to increase Argentine pork production, for example, to, to supply directly the Chinese. But also China is very interested in markets. And so what you find is in everything from um, you know, manufacturing, uh, so some of the facilities it's actually set up for its cars and electric buses and other things like that and heavy equipment in Brazil and in Mexico, which also have access to, to other markets. You find that it's a big player in the electricity sector where it's involved with the mostly clean energy type of uh, facilities. Uh, it's done a lot in hydroelectric, combining loans as well as actually building those with, with its own companies. It's done a lot in, in wind and solar. Some of the biggest photovoltaic uh, solar arrays, uh, one in north of Argentina, another uh, near Asu, Brazil, are actually um, by Chinese companies. Uh, it's even involved in the production of, of nuclear power with the uh, projected new $8 billion project in the Atucha complex in Argentina, as well as uh, electricity generation. It's put almost $30 billion into long-distance generation capabilities in Brazil, but it's also bought into transmission and, and distribution in places like Chile and Peru, uh, even now in, in Argentina. And of course, uh, you know some of the high-tech sectors, everything from fintech, e-commerce, companies like Alibaba, the rideshare company, uh, Didi Chuxung, which competes heavily against Uber, um, especially in, in Mexico and, and Brazil, has major portions of the Latin American market. Other types of, of technical uh, industries, we see uh, Huawei, which has been in the region since about 1999 uh, and is now positioned to play a major role in, in 5G, as well as being a major part of the Latin American telecom backbone in surveillance architectures, uh, things, big projects like Equi 911 in Ecuador and BOL 110 in Bolivia. You know, even things like, for example, uh, the Chinese uh, surveillance company Hikivision just acquired uh, one of Mexico's biggest uh, surveillance systems company, uh, Syscom. And so you see across the board in a whole range of different things. China is trying to capture the market space to get access to those markets, to get access as well as uh, to the sources of supply, and also leveraging connectivity to tie those things together. It, it's played a big role in, in the construction of highways, even things like uh, not only um, a $5 billion project in Argentina for the Belgrano Cargas uh, rail system modernization, but in countries you'd think we're, we're not that disposed to, to work directly with China. So uh, just one big project uh, for a segment of Highway 5 in Chile, a public-private partnership program. Uh, of course, in Colombia, famously won a contract for a you know, $4.5 billion project for the Bogota Metro. It's in ports in a, in a range of different countries, and including a major new port in Chiang Kai, Peru. So it really is across the spectrum. Uh, even in biotech, you see it making advances, especially uh, since uh, COVID-19. So it really is multidimensional in, in search of markets, but also sources of supply. And uh, in the process, is gaining a lot of uh, political leverage. Talk about China's soft power in the region. How much soft power does China have and what is the basis of that soft power? That's a great question, Dan. Um, China actually has a lot more soft power than most people think. When we think of soft power, we oftentimes think of a more consensual concept, uh, such as uh, what uh, scholars such as Joseph Nye have put out, the idea that people go to the United States, uh, U.S. universities, they they decide that the things that they learn about markets or, or democracies are useful in, in applying it in their own uh, countries. Um, however, with China, although you do get some of that, certainly some people look at uh, China's uh, balance between state control and the private sector or 
for you know state control and uh, you know freedom of, of expression and think uh, well China's gotten a lot of order out of that uh, maybe that's not a bad idea to apply in our own societies but beyond that a lot of China's soft power is about the expectation of benefit the idea of not only getting access to the 1.4 billion uh, Chinese market but also being a local partner to Chinese companies sometimes uh, that involves a benefit to the corporation sometimes it's benefit to the country with China coming in as an employer in the minds of politicians sometimes it's also the question of you know what family friend the intermediation contract or other side deal for that contract goes to but the difficulty with those expectation of benefits is there's a general understanding in the region that um, China uh, does not take well to people speaking out against what it's doing you know to the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang or in Hong Kong uh, with the suppression of democratic protests there or with the militarization of the reefs and shoals in, in the south uh, in, in East China Sea. And so it tends to cause people to restrain themselves in, in Latin America from saying certain things because they don't want to jeopardize the, the benefit from the Chinese. And in the process, that means that some of the risks and challenges and predatory behavior of the Chinese are not discussed or not pushed back against by the very people who are best willing to do so. One final thing I should say in this area is that one dimension of China's soft power is its people-to-people diplomacy. Now, a lot of things have been said about Chinese Confucius Institutes. There are about 44 of those institutes uh, plus Confucius classrooms in the region. However, um, it goes beyond the institutes themselves. For me, the institutes, and I write about this in the book, are gatekeepers. People with an interest in learning Chinese, uh, the endurance and the talent to master the difficult Mandarin language and the Chinese character set, those people uh, become eligible for uh, Hanban scholarships by the Chinese Cultural Promotion Organization to get university educations in China itself. And because there are so few people in Latin America who know know, China and the language, those people are great candidates to be hired for their governments uh, when they have a need for China-facing positions in their Ministry of Foreign Affairs or their Ministries of Commerce, which means that, uh, ironically, a lot of the people who are representing their governments before China um, end up owing a big debt of gratitude for the Chinese to having given those, those positions. And, and even beyond that, frankly, there are almost infinite number of different uh, Chinese other people-to-people activities bringing Latin American academics and think tank professionals over. The um, International Liaison Department of the Chinese Communist Party is um, very adept at doing that, bringing politicians and other officials. And it may not turn everyone it brings over to China into propagandists, but it, again, it tends to alter the debate um, by those people in ways that are beneficial to China um, for people who at least don't want to appear ungrateful and, you know, frankly, who don't want to jeopardize this ongoing relationship that is so important for their consulting or, or their other work. One of the things that's not thought about is Taiwan is recognized by about 15 countries and about seven of them are in the Western Hemisphere. I would argue that some of the energies that China spends in the Western Hemisphere has the Taiwan recognition in the backdrop. Could you talk a little bit about that? The issue of Taiwan is probably one of the areas where China's first interest is political over over economic. Uh, certainly for China, the eventual reinc- the incorporation of Taiwan uh, into the PRC remains a strategic goal. Uh, President Xi wants to do it before the end of his now unprecedented third term. Um, but what happens is, on, on the one hand, obviously, the battle for diplomatic recognition is, is back on. We saw that after the Tsai Ing-wen government uh, came into power in 2016, that was followed by some flips in Africa and then moved over to the competition in Latin America with flips by, by first of 
the Varela government in Panama, uh, Danilo Modino in Dominican Republic, and then of course uh, El, El Salvador with uh, Salvador Sanchez Seren, uh, and then most recently of course uh, Nicaragua. Um, some people believe that uh, you know Haiti may be at risk for whoever replaces Ariel Henry, um, and uh, you know certainly uh, Xiomara Castro in Honduras, um, the current president while candidate, had pledged that she would change relations, although she's backed off of that a little bit so far. But the bottom line is, on the one hand, it creates strategic risks because as the number of countries that go towards uh, you know, recognizing uh, Taiwan go towards zero, that tempts the PRC with its already overwhelming military superiority uh, in, in Asia to forcibly reincorporate uh, Taiwan. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, it also gives opportunities for China to dramatically increase its presence in the changing countries. Because what happens is almost always you have a series of non-transparent memorandums of understanding. Um, some of the best connected business elites in those countries travel to China to, to participate in the celebration of, of the recognition where they get deals particular to their own uh, commercial interest. And so very rapidly, the Chinese with these flips are able to you know, buy off the key well-connected business elites. They're able to get into sectors like um, electricity generation and telecommunication and construction, um, and usually set up a new Confucius Institute in the process. And so a level of magnitude jump in their influence um, that comes often in the, the months or early years after that recognition. And again, that, that deepens China's presence in the region. With the exception of Paraguay in South America, all of the states which continue to recognize the PRC are now either in Central America or in the Caribbean. And so it's beginning to focus that expansion and influence in an area which is very close uh, physically and geographically to to the United States and integrated into the U.S. economy. And so uh, those flips become all of the more uh, important as they move into that space that is uh, very much in our near abroad. So if I think about COVID-19, I think there was a lot of vaccine diplomacy success by the Chinese Communist Party. They held out vaccines. They were making vaccines. There was a shortage. There was a six-month holdup in vaccines for a bunch of reasons because developed countries were hoarding vaccines. And if you're an elected official in a developed country, you're going to favor Pennsylvania over Paraguay, and you're going to favor Boston over Bolivia. And so that was the problem. And so there's lots of trying ways to solution and work around it. But we weren't the only game in town in terms of vaccines. 20 years ago, the West was the only game in town. Today, mainland China is another competitor in terms of vaccines. So they use their vaccines to say, hey, Dominican Republic, we'll give you some vaccines, but we really think you ought to take another close look at the wonderful technology company Huawei and include it in your digital system. And hey, El Salvador, thank you for flipping from Taiwan to mainland China in diplomatic recognition. We will flood you with vaccines. Could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely, Dan. Um, and it actually uh, evolved over time uh, because before the vaccines, you actually had the concerted uh, public diplomacy on issues of, of PPE. And the Chinese were equally good in, you know, when they delivered masks and ventilators and sometimes uh, cameras, making sure that it, it was a major embassy event. But as you also pointed out, part of the leverage that the Chinese had when they, they came in with the, um, the the canned Sino vaccines with uh, the Sinopharm and the Sinovac vaccines is that there was so little available through COVAX. There was so little available available uh, through the United States. And so um, even in places like, like Chile, um, it was very much appreciated. As you pointed out, they were able to use that initial absence uh, to um, you know, change the positions uh, of the pro-US uh, Luis Abinader government in Dominican Republic on, on the issue of, of Chinese access to Huawei. They were even able to bend uh, China skeptic uh, Jair Bolsonaro on, on the issue of rethinking uh, his own exclusion of Huawei from, from 5G there. You saw some efforts uh, to try to actually convince Paraguay as well. Um, uh, the very uh, pro 
Taiwan government of Abdul Benitez actually um, pushed back and, and publicly exposed the ploy there. What I see now, however, is um, there is a residual influence in that China recognized that with Omicron and the other variants that its vaccines just were not that effective. You know, about 50% effective for for Sinovac versus uh, you know in the, in the high 90s uh, for the mRNA vaccines. And so um, one of the things that China has tried to do right now, and it publicly committed in its most recent China SELAC uh, three-year plan, is that in the places that it did its phase three trials and in early co-production, it wants to continue to produce. And, and why? Probably because China wants to get access to those mRNA vaccines that it recognized it was uh, so deficient. But the other piece is, is what you see is that now with the U.S. vaccines, with the mRNA vaccines coming in the region, at least that piece of the Chinese leverage has decreased uh, somewhat. Certainly now there are other things that give it uh, also increasing leverage, the importance of China in purchasing um, commodities from, from the region while demand from elsewhere is, is weakened. Uh, the importance of, of China is we're increasingly in these difficult times to uh, purchase um, or, or make investments uh, in infrastructure sectors like, you know, when will China go forward with the, uh, the port of Shanghai? Um, you know, when will China, you know, work with AMLO more closely to to help him with with Train Amaya, in which they have a, of a role? So there are a number of different opportunities that come out of COVID, not just the vaccines, but that certainly shows how China is opportunistic in, in leveraging the needs that it can to advance its both commercial and political positions in, in a range of areas. Here's the money question, which is, what should the U.S. do about all this? That's a great question, Dan, a very important one. And frankly, over, again, the 20 years I followed this, I've seen the U.S. reaction evolve from essentially discomfort and and, and uh, trying to push for greater transparency um, to obviously a, a more um, you know, mediated public discourse uh, during the Trump administration, try to convince our partners to, to rethink uh, some of the, the risks of engaging with China. But in, in general, I focus on on several different areas in, in my own uh, work. It's really the, what I dedicated the last chapter to, to try to bring some of these things together. I think the center point is that it doesn't make sense for the United States to try to block Latin America, our partners, from um, legitimate economic uh, in interactions. That brings resentment for them, um, and it's probably going to be completely ineffective with dealing with our sovereign partners. But what the U.S. can do, number one, it can press for um, greater transparency in those interactions, and there are both carrots and sticks. Uh, so there's a move away from transparency. We have uh, tools, everything from uh, Treasury Department to OFAC sanctions uh, to uh, Department of State visa policy and, and things such as that. But the other pieces is to try to push for uh, those deals and those interactions to take place on a level playing field in the context of rule of law. And to that extent, uh, not only do we have uh, certain sticks, but we also have certain carrots. The United States uh, long has been used to working with our partners with tools that help governance, help to bring down corruption, help them on, on the front end to have more effective uh, processes for identifying what their public infrastructure requirements are, and not just the shiny thing that China puts in front of them, um, helping them to do more technically competent adjudication of contracts, um, helping to identify where there are strategic risks in mergers and acquisition, as we do with our CFIUS process in, in the United States. Um, on the back end, helping our partners to have more effective capability to enforce their laws against not only Chinese, but other companies who often like to cut corners on environmental compliance or labor law compliance. So in that way, uh, you can you know not stop all Chinese projects, but at least uh, create a greater probability that uh, you avoid some of the more risk predatory ones, and that our partners at least uh, get something positive to show for those projects. Now, I would say that there's two other areas. Um, number one, that there are 
certain sensitive uh, areas, especially in the digital space. Uh, so again, you know, Huawei and telecommunications, uh, as well as, uh, of course, uh, you know, things like uh, data centers where Huawei is trying to lure Latin American um, you know, tech startups to locate uh, their services and key intellectual property in the, in, in the cloud, uh, surveillance architectures that we talked about before, uh, as well as, uh, you know, certain e-commerce uh, things like also uh, the, the rideshare um, company, Didi Chuxung, which accumulates enormous amounts of, of data on, you know, where it takes its Ride, you know, writers and thus potentially who those government and business writers you know, met with. And so in those type of, of risky areas, I would argue that the U.S. does need to make a little bit more of a concerted pushback. But in doing so, we need to use a combination of working with our, our partners as well as uh, some incentives and disincentives to make those alternatives to the you know, Huawei system, et cetera, uh, viable. It also involves getting into standards. And one area where the U.S. actually does also need to do better is having a more data driven, effective group of, of data for public messaging. It's not enough to just talk about Sri Lanka and Hanbantota. You need to have a more data that's available to you know people in our State Department as they prepare for senior leader talker, talking points as we engage, whether it's the Southcom leaders, um, also to have out there in the public space, which is accessible by academics and, and others. There's an excellent uh, new database, for example, um, using USAID data uh, done by, by Vanderbilt, taking a look in great detail about some of the predatory nature of Chinese debt contracts. So in all of those areas, there's a better need for data-driven analysis of the performance of, of Chinese companies their relative performance, um, the social unrest that's caused, et cetera, so that people can talk authoritatively about when going with China is a good deal and, and when it isn't. And it's not just that uh, you know the hegemonic United States uh, says, don't go with China because it's all part of great power competition, but to actually show empirically that there are reasons why um, you might want to rethink this. And so um, that's a lot of work that, that we can do. But in the process, it supports all of those things, support uh, democratic discourse in the region and helping our partners see the U.S. as part of the solution rather than essentially part of the problem. Evan, thanks so much for doing this. This is great. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. A real pleasure to be on the program. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 